This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. And by the way, we probably should clarify, and perhaps should have done this many years ago, that yours truly, in fact, is not the Douglas D. Everett, who is a Canadian automobile dealer, lawyer, and retired senator from Manitoba. Likewise, I am not the Douglas H. Everett that occasionally turns up in lists of quotations for having once said, there are some people who live in a dream world, and there are some who face reality. And then there are those who turn one into the other. Which, frankly, I think is only a fair to Midland quote. And not coincidentally, will not be our quote of the day today. In fact, we weren't able to find a great deal about Douglas H. Everett. When I pulled up his picture on the internet, I noticed he is wearing what appears to be an astronaut suit. We hope he is, in fact, an astronaut. Just to fully cover this subject today, we would note, I'm also not the Douglas Newton Everett, who was an American ice hockey player. Douglas Newton competed in the 1932 Winter Olympics, but passed away in 1996. You know, we really are confused at this point because trying to find out more about Douglas H. Everett wearing the astronaut suit, apparently he's written several books titled Colloid Science, Volumes 1 through 4. Mr. Everett, we're not sure if it's the same one or not, apparently also wrote Ions in Macromolecular and Biological Systems, along with co-author B. Vincent. And if you know anything about any of these guys, don't hesitate to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And who the heck knows, maybe one day we'll be able to say, Douglas Everett, welcome to Radio Parallax. At any rate, let's begin this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. I should note as we begin that we may or may not be joined by some old pals or new pals on today's program. There's so much backlog that, well, we're just going to do our best to debulk our collected materials which have been set aside for this program. If we stacked it all on top of each other right now, it would be about two feet high. At any rate, our date in question today is the 7th of February. And to cut Mr. Merlin off before he asks me, I would emphasize that there are, in fact, two R's in February, and they are both pronounced. Something we've been pointing out for the past decade on this program, apparently to no avail, as people seem to keep referring to this month as February It was on February 7th in 1569 that the Spanish Inquisition established a branch office in South America, which was awfully considerate of them, don't you think? Of course, I was noting on Bill Maher last night, he was talking about Cardinal Ratzinger, currently our Pope Benedict XVI, who uh, ran the office in the Vatican that that is the direct descendant of the office of the Inquisition. We'll have more to say about the Catholics later on today's program. And I would add, yes, I am a fallen Catholic uh, myself. Boy, here's what we need to get Pamela Taylor on to talk about. uh, For it was on February 7th in 1788 that a flotilla of British ships bearing 730 transported convicts and 250 free persons established a settlement along the southeast coast of Australia in Sydney Cove. The settlement would grow into the modern metropolis of Sydney. One of, I must say, the world's most beautiful cities. Red Letter Day in the cinema. It was 99 years ago today, February 7th in 1914, that English actor Charlie Chaplin debuted his Little Tramp character in Kid Races in Venice. 
And of course, that meek, baggy pants fellow with the mustache, bowler hat, and cane would become Chaplin's trademark. I've said it before in this program, and I think, I think I'll say it again right now. When it comes to screen comedy, there's Charlie Chaplin, and there's everybody else. Of course, we have to note among me, everybody else, the runner-up to the crown that Chaplin wears might, might well go to Buster Keaton. And no, Mr. McMillan, very definitely not to Ollie G. All right, on February 7th in 1942, during World War II, the U.S. government officially ordered all automakers to stop making passenger cars and start manufacturing military hardware such as tanks. The automakers were guaranteed profits regardless of production costs throughout the war. Unfortunately, they got pretty used to that during the war, and as a result, post-World War II, we had the military-industrial complex, which is still pretty much running the U.S. economy. And of course, when I say that, I would remind you that that opinion, like all those heard on the show, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. And finally, on February 7th, 1964, Pan Am Flight 101 from London's Heathrow Airport landed in New York's Kennedy Airport, and Beatlemania officially arrived in the United States. This marked the first visit to the U.S. by the Beatles, described in our book on history as a British rock and roll quartet that had, in fact, just scored their first number one U.S. hit with Who's Up on Their Musical Trivia? Well, if you answered, I want to hold your hand, go to the head of the class. All right, our quote of the day comes from George Orwell, who once said, The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. Which allows us to slide into our quip of the day from George Burns, who said, Sincerity. If you can fake that, you've got it made. Our bonus quote and quip of the day comes from Coco Chanel. And let's face it, we do very few fashion-related topics on this show. So we're going to toss Coco a bone. With this one, some people think luxury is the opposite of poverty. It is not. It is the opposite of vulgarity. Speaking of vulgarity, I think I meant to talk about my trip to go see the Book of Mormon a couple months ago. A friend of mine saw it up and summed it up with the, with the words, gratuitous vulgarity, but still amusing. Which I guess is pretty much what you would expect from the creators of South Park, isn't it? Let's do a couple jokes of the day today. First from Jay Leno's writers, who said in his farewell speech to the Senate, John Kerry spoke for 51 minutes about Washington being gridlocked. The cause of the gridlock? Senators giving 51-minute speeches. All right, this joke was sent to us by David, who listens to us down in the Palm Springs area. The children were gathered in the front pew one Sunday morning for the children's sermon. The minister asked them, Does anyone know what the resurrection is? One little boy said, I'm not quite sure, but I do know that you have a resurrection that lasts longer than four hours. You have to call a doctor. It reportedly took them about 10 minutes to settle down enough to continue with the worship service. And joke number two was sent to us by Gary. Actually, it was sent to a lot of people by Gary, but that was one of the recipients. Noted the piece, for all the girls out there who are in a hurry to have a boyfriend or to rush off and get married, 
We offer a piece of biblical advice. It's noted in the Bible that Ruth patiently waited for her mate, Boaz, and suggested that while you are waiting for your Boaz, don't settle for any of his relatives, such as broke-as, lion-as, or cheatin'-as, and especially his third cousin, dumb-as. No, it is suggested, you should in fact wait for your Boaz. And thirdly, Tom from Chico sent us some rules for the upcoming Super Bowl party. And by the way, we want to say, too bad to all the 49er fans out there. It was certainly a close game, an exciting game. And by God, it could have gone either way. It's unfortunate it didn't go the way of the men in red. But, you know, I got a feeling they'll be back in the years to come. Just kind of the feeling one had back in 1982 after the first Super Bowl victory when you thought that well, Joe Montana just might bring these guys back in the years to come. But anyway, Tom forwarded these following Super Bowl party rules, of which I will just excerpt a few, such as rule number six. If you're grilling burgers outside in the cold, don't act like you're landing a spaceship on Jupiter. You're just grilling burgers outside in the cold, man. It's not that amazing. We do like number seven, which points out that a good Super Bowl prank is to show up with a big bowl with a big bowl of kale salad and yell, Hey, who's ready for some kale salad? Chris, we do like rule number one, which is a Super Bowl party is just a bunch of smart Alex making pithy wisecracks about a mass cultural event. It's like Twitter, but with people. And I guess we should close with rule number three from the list, which seems pretty sensible. It is a Super Bowl party is casual. There is no dress code. Well, pants. You should at least wear pants. Can we just agree on the pants, please? Our stat of the day is one-third, as in one-third of Americans aren't sleeping enough, and apparently it's hurting their employers. According to the Wall Street Journal, Harvard scientists found that sleep deprivation costs U.S. companies $63 billion in lost productivity each and every year. Thanks to what is described as presenteeism, defined as people showing up for work but operating at subpar levels. I would note that the current edition, which I've not yet read, of New Scientist magazine has sleep as the cover story. Apparently it's an exploration of some of the mysteries of sleep, and we hope to bring on Dr. Richard Stack from the Mercy Sleep Center on this program in the weeks to come to talk about uh, What it is we spend eight hours of our day, well, we should be spending eight hours of our day doing, and why it is the whole damn process remains so mysterious. I can pretty much promise you that one's not going to be a snoozer. All right, let's do a few miscellaneous items here, starting with the fact that apparently 2013 is officially, according to the United Nations, the International Year of Quinoa. Mental Floss Magazine suggests that we all plan our next 12 months accordingly. But I mention this because uh, I actually have been a quinoa advocate on this program. Having noted on trips to South America that this, uh, this plant seems to grow in some pretty sketchy soil, pretty arid soil, and yet is a staple in Bolivia. It, it tastes pretty good and it's quite a fad now in health food stores across the country. I'd suggest, uh, dear listener, that you go out and experiment with it because uh, it's, um, it's not a grain. And it's not a bean, and I guess I'm not sure what the heck it is from a botanical standpoint, but it tastes pretty good, and it's good for you, so check it out. Any botanists out there, help us out, will you? Info at radioparallax.com. 
Because, you know, it seems to me that we should be growing quinoa here in California in some of our more marginal areas for agriculture. You know, who knows? If we could save enough water that uh, would normally go into crops, we might be able to keep our fish alive out in the Delta. But I'm laying off that one today. All right, another little item out of mental floss, which I can't resist, which I guess I'll just quote from. The Italian tarantula is now known to be basically harmless. But centuries ago, every summer, people who claimed they were bitten by the tarantula exhibited an array of troubling symptoms. Delusions, listlessness, jumpiness, twitchiness, giddiness, lethargy, which, don't these sound contradictory? Unusual and excessive thirst for wine. Yeah. Affected women apparently ran around exposing themselves while men experienced unrelenting erections. That last one really brought me up short. Out in the real world, it so happens I operate a clinic that specializes in treating erectile dysfunction. And uh, be that as it may, we are not going to stray into using tarantula bites to see if we can induce prolonged erections. But the article goes on. They could be cured only by certain types of up-tempo songs, tarantellas, to which they responded involuntarily in the form of a frenetic dance. Reportedly, the playing and dancing went on for hours. The cure could take anywhere from three to eight days. During this festival, villagers who'd been bitten in previous years often experienced a recurrence of the disease from hearing the music, and they began dancing as well. Yes, I do believe this comes somewhere under the heading of mass hysteria. But it does offer Mr. Merlin the opportunity to pull up some music of the Tarantella genre. Now, we're not going to be joined by Sean Minton on today's program. Hopefully, Sean will join us in the weeks to come and um, hopefully bounce off this letter to the Sacramento Bee off of him from Warden Wong. Mr. Wong posed the question, a new dynasty? Um, I had to chuckle when I read the special section of the Super Bowl. I thought it was a bit premature since San Francisco hadn't even won the game yet to start a new dynasty. I also noticed that all the B sports writers picked the 49ers to win. I have a feeling they got swept up in the hype and believed all they had to do was play the game because the outcome was a foregone conclusion. Lesson learned. Let's not refer to the current 49ers as a new dynasty until they've won at least two Super Bowls. And here's an item that uh, we also cannot resist, at least yours truly cannot, uh, having advocated repeatedly that it's time to get rid of the worthless penny in America. Well, in America, gridlocked as we are, as John Kerry so aptly points out, we just can't seem to manage that, but Canada is going to bite the bullet and do it. On Monday, the Royal Canadian Mint officially ended its distribution of one-cent coins to financial institutions. Noted a piece by Rob Gillies, while people still may use pennies up north, the government has issued guidelines urging store owners to start rounding prices to the nearest nickel for each transaction. Electronic purchases will still be billed to the nearest cent. The government has said that the penny will remain as legal tender until they eventually disappear from circulation. We note here in Radio Parallax that New Zealand, Australia, the Netherlands, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and many other countries have also dropped their pennies. Our Treasury Department, the U.S. Treasury Department, has said the Obama administration has looked at possibly using cheaper materials to make the penny, 
which in case you don't know, is being made of zinc now for the past, I don't know, a couple decades with only a small amount of copper. Back in 2002 and 2006, then-Representative Jim Colby of Arizona failed to get his bill through the House of U.S. Representatives, which have stopped the penny. It's noted that the American zinc lobby has been a major opponent of suggestions that the penny be eliminated. I wonder why. But uh, last April, John Fund, and I can't believe I'm quoting from nationalreview.com, but you know, what the hell? Like a stopped clock? They got to be right once in a while. Mr. Fund pointed out that if you drop a penny on the street, no one even bothers to pick it up. An MIT scientist calculated that we each spend 2.4 hours a year counting out pennies in stores. For the piece, Mr. Fund did some math and said that if we eliminate the penny and round to the nickel, well, consumers will lose. We'll lose the tune of about $18 a year. So I guess the question is, as far as you're concerned, dear listener, is $18 worth 2.4 hours of your time? Well, we did the math to conclude that if you're making under $7.50 an hour, it might be worth it to count your pennies. If you make more than that, it ain't. Hey, you know what? We're eating through this segment and we haven't done the good and the bad and the ugly yet. Let's, let's correct that deficiency. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for declarations of faith, to which Radio Parallax might like to tack on or recycling an old Cheech and Chong bit, with the news that apparently a group of Florida women drove off an armed robber who burst into their jewelry party by chanting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Said homeowner Jackie Hagler, the intruder ran out the door as fast as he could go. Some of you will no doubt remember the old Cheech and Chong bit where Cheech Marin is panhandling with lines like, Hey, can you help me out, man? I need to get like a kidney operation. He's getting nowhere. Then a guy walks up to him and says, Excuse me, sir, do you know that Jesus loves you? To which he's like, Yeah, yeah, go away, man. Clink. Long pause. Cheech then starts hitting up people with, Excuse me, sir, do you know Jesus loves you? Clink. Yeah, excuse me, sir, have you heard the good news about Jesus Christ? Clink. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened here, but you have to wonder. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for mass communication after a Scottish receptionist accidentally forwarded a series of intimate emails between her and a co-worker to the entire company, whereupon they went viral on the Internet. Yes, make a note, Mr. Moreno, we don't play nearly enough tubes on Radio Parallax. I would like to think that if that Scottish receptionist and her lover had decided to put out a CD, it would sound very much like, don't touch me there. Anyway, meanwhile, back in Scotland, a company spokesman said that the couple, who are engaged, did nothing wrong, but, quote, regrettably, they have chosen to resign, unquote. And finally, it was an ugly week for all the news that's fit to print Russian style. 
With the news from Russia that apparently Vladimir Putin has now had a second love child with his much younger mistress. Yes, the Russian president, age 60, and former rhythmic gymnast Alina Kabaeva, age 29, reportedly had a baby girl. They already have a three-year-old son. Putin has moved Kabaeva and the kids into his palace on the coast of Russia's Black Sea. Meanwhile, his wife, Ludmilla, age 55, has not appeared in public for almost a year. Now, Putin's extramarital relationship was revealed back in 2008 by a Moscow newspaper, but sadly, the paper retracted the story and soon closed. Since then, the Russian media has gone silent on Mr. Putin's love life. Put your chest against mine. Feel my heart beat. I love the way your belt fits. The way it hangs so low. So low on your hips, my darling. I want you so. All right, from the week's Only in America file, we have the news that veganism may now count as a religion. That's what a federal court has ruled. Apparently, someone named Sakile Chenirzra, a strict vegan, was fired from her job at a Cincinnati hospital because she refused a flu shot that's produced using chicken eggs. A court ruled that her discrimination lawsuit may proceed since her veganism has a, quote, sincerity equating that of traditional religious views, unquote. You know, we'd like to think that Radio Parallax has a sincerity that's equating that of traditional religious views. And if we can find a way to make get us a tax-exempt status like the Church of Scientology, well, we're just going to have to work on that. Oh, and yes, we are trying to get Lawrence Wright to come talk to us about his book, Going Clear, on Scientology. Uh, uh, we're still working on it. Well, we've got to take a break. And we'll do so in a moment, but I just want to note regarding our story about Italian tarantulas that while I was out in the garage a couple of days ago, in fact, pawing through some old K-Deviations copies to extract some of the interviews whose transcripts appeared in the publication, I uh, felt a bit of a pinprick as I was reaching down to, to move the papers, which had been on the floor for some weeks. felt like something bit me, and uh, it appears that something did. As I pulled the papers aside, I noticed that, oh my goodness, yes, there appears to be some black widows here. Upon further investigation, I uncovered what appeared to be a mama black widow and a few adolescents. The mama was not where I'd had my hand, so apparently one of the juvenile spiders bit me. And I gotta tell you, as I looked down during this moment of realization, I was transported from my garage in the year 2013 back to the family garage, which I can only guess must have been 1958. As a small boy, I was given a lecture about spiders that hang out in the woodpile out in the garage. I was counseled against sticking my hand into the woodpile indiscriminately, and my dad at one point pulled out a black widow to show me what to avoid. It was some good advice, and uh, avoid I did for uh, over five decades. Now, as a doctor, he used to work in ERs, and I know that envenomations by uh, black widows uh, a lot of times are, are pretty minor. And in this case, given that the spider appeared to be not a fully grown adult, I expected no consequences, and indeed, I didn't experience any. But it was pretty weird having a half-century disappear as I was again, briefly, a small boy back in the garage in Fremont, paying close attention to a lecture about poisonous spiders. 
And I'm especially happy to report that I, I did not experience listlessness, jumpiness, twitchiness, lethargy, or an unrelenting erection. And I really do think we need to take a break, so let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got plenty more in segment two.